Hi, thanks, Christine. Hey, guys, I'm Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at UniChurch. Uh, we are looking tonight at Isaiah 7. It's a cracker passage. Uh, it, it's such a song of hope, isn't it? Such, a, such words of hope in this prophecy from Isaiah written so many thousands of years ago. Why don't we start tonight by praying? Father God, as we come to your word tonight, we're so aware that we need hope. Um, we're, we're so aware that sometimes the world around us feels dark uh, and that there is brokenness in this world. And so we pray tonight that you might help us to see you more clearly, to see you and the one who you have sent, King Jesus, into this world as light. We pray that we might cling to him, love him, trust him, and live for him all the more as we see this prophecy from Isaiah 9. Amen. Well, we are going through this series, Songs of the Kings, at the moment, as Rowan said. And Songs of the King, what we're hoping is to present to you a bunch of the uh, passages in Scripture that speak to this reality that all of the Bible is one cohesive narrative that climaxes in the person and work of Jesus, that crescendos, that, that's the song of the Bible, is the song of Jesus, who he is and what he's done. And so we've been looking at some of these songs throughout the last few weeks, and we've got a few more weeks to go in our Christmas series. And, and songs are unique, aren't they? Because they do something for us. See, the Bible doesn't just come to us as a textbook, as an instruction manual, as a contract to like read over and sign. No, it comes to us with stories and songs, with poetry and and prose and all these kind of things, because the Bible, God's aware that we're not just robots. We actually need more than just facts in order to make decisions and, and live our lives. Now, by saying that, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that if you uh, take the Christian faith, that it's not verifiable. No, no, I think at the heart of the Christian faith, the personal work of Jesus, his death and resurrection, the history, the verifiable facts of those events in history are are worth checking out. If you're new to Christianity, new to church, we'd love you to come and check out those facts with us. And we think it's compelling to come away from looking at the evidence to see that Jesus really is who he says he is. Okay, but what, here's what I am saying. We don't make decisions in our lives as, as kind of as robots. We don't make decisions as kind of just like logical uh, computation. Okay, we are holistic embodied people. And so our, our emotions, our desires, our longings, uh, they all play a factor in how we work out what we're doing in the world, how we make decisions. Okay, we, we, we're all driven by this mix of things going on in our lives. And, and if I'm honest about it, as I reflect on my own life, it's, it's not, sometimes not just the facts that I need to hear. Sometimes it is just the facts and the, the things that I've forgotten, I need to be reminded of them. But I, I, I know when my kids are tension with me that I need to like, remain calm and be gentle. I know that if I don't spend time with God, I'll start to feel cold and distant with Him. I, I know that I can be selfish and proud and I see it in my own life and yet there's times when I just can't change that. Is that your experience? I think actually that speaks to some of the heart of what it is to be human and, and to deal with the reality of being in a broken world. We actually, and sometimes we need more than just the, the cold hard facts. We need uh, God to speak into our experience, both to give us his wisdom and knowledge, but also to speak into our, our kind of lived experience and the brokenness that we all feel at times. And, and I think songs do this. Right? Songs have the ability to express kind of the pain of the present moment and the hope of the future. 
Uh, one genre of songs, probably more than any, does that. Uh, it's the genre of breakup songs. You know, half of Taylor Swift's library. I'm a Swiftie at heart, so I can take a shot at her. Um, for me, the one that stands out as I was like, what's my favorite breakup song? Uh, I think it's Kelly Clarkson, Since You've Been Gone. Uh, I'm, I'm showing my age here. But that song, uh, it just, you know, great pain in the present moment, but hope for the future. Things will get better, okay? I think that's what Isaiah 9 does. It's not a breakup song. It's, you know, it's not even a song technically. Who have asked the question last week? It's not, this isn't a song. It's prophetic prose. But it's written in such a way as to draw us in to the kind of the narrative and the beauty of the Christian story. Uh, and, and so we're going to have a look at this song now and see... First, how Israel would have understood it, and how this is God's word to us today to, to cherish and take hold of because it gives us life. So let's have a look. Here's the first point, a day of light and peace. The book of Isaiah up until this point in chapter 9 has been mostly doom and gloom. I don't know if you've read through Isaiah recently, but basically here's the synopsis. God's people are on trial and under judgment from God because they have turned their backs on him. They have rebelled against him. They have failed as his people to live out the way that he's called them to live as light and life in the world. And so he's going to hold them under judgment. And the kings in particular are indicted by God and his prophets for being godless, for being kings who rather than rule with justice and righteousness have ruled for their own self-interest and selfish gain. And Isaiah's commission to bring this word of judgment from the Lord to this people this is now to the nation of Judah, but also Israel is kind of in the picture as well. It's when after the kingdom has split into two. And, and the king of Judah at this time is King Ahaz. If you know much about him, you can know that he's not a very good guy. Uh, the record of King Ahaz's rule says that he didn't do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He was a king who lived for himself and what he thought was right, rather than God who made him. And the first kind of 35 chapters of the book of Isaiah unpack this indictment against Israel and against Judah and against the kings and against the people for failing to live God's way. And in chapter 8, we see that the great judgment of God which is coming on them is going to come on them in the form of the Assyrian Empire, the great kind of superpower in the 7th century B.C., and, and scattered throughout these warnings of judgment and armies coming against them and the Lord's destruction against the people of Israel for their failure and rebellion is this kind of sprinkling of messages of hope, of, of prophecies from Isaiah which, which give hope and life and, and kind of, it's almost weird seeing this juxtaposition of judgment and yet hope, destruction and yet renewal that's kind of there in the book of Isaiah. See, the thing that Isaiah wants to keep reminding the people of is that despite how bleak the present is, despite how bleak even the future will be, that that is not God's plan for his people. That's not God's plan for his people. That despite their brokenness and failure, God has a plan to save, a plan to restore, a plan to renew, that judgment and darkness will not be God's final word to his people. And so Isaiah 9 comes at this, one of these key moments. It offers this profound change in direction where it's no longer judgment, but this prophecy of hope. And that's where we find ourselves tonight. So pick it up with me in verse 1. It says, Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times, when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to the Galilee of the nations." 
The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. See, Isaiah says that these lands in particular, Zebulun and Naphtali, they won't be places of gloom and darkness, but they'll be places of light and honor, and God's going to do something there in this work. And it's helpful for us to understand a little bit of geography here. Let's do a little bit of a geography lesson. Can you just bring up that map, please? Okay, here's the uh, allotment of the 12 tribes of Israel. You can see at the top there, the orange one, Naphtali. You can see the purple one, Zebulon. Uh, that little lake just in the middle of Naphtali, that's Lake Galilee, Sea of Galilee. Uh, so we're familiar with the Sea of Galilee. Jesus did a lot of ministry there. But uh, what, what's worth noticing is that Israel is kind of quite long and thin as a, as a nation. And you see the uh, River Jordan that runs vertical down the east side. It had steep canyons kind of going up both sides and basically makes it kind of this impenetrable fortress. It's really hard to attack Israel from the side. And so you've got two options if you want to invade Israel, from the south or from the north. Now, to the south is Egypt, and they are not doing well at this point in world history. They're not really a threat to anyone. And so most of the threat and worry for Israel at this time in history is nations to sweep across from the east or from the north and come down that channel through Zebulun and Naphtali. They were the kind of the target zone for anyone who wanted to invade Israel. And, and so what we see is that this prophecy of Isaiah that the Assyrian army is going to invade, it's not a coincidence that Zebulun and Naphtali are the regions of gloom and darkness because this is where the invasion would start. This is where the brokenness would first be experienced for the people of God. But Isaiah speaks about that coming judgment and also about that future day when a light will dawn in those places. Do you notice the phrase he used? The Galilee of the Gentiles, the Galilee of the nations. It's interesting, this region was kind of a melting pot because it was on the edge of the colony, and so there would have been people from different nations that kind of were there for trade and stuff. But, but in some sense, I think we get the sense that there's something that's going to happen in this region, Galilee, which will be for the benefit not just of the region, but for the nations even wider than the region. And I think the image of light dawning, it's supposed to kind of help us think of new opportunities, of a fresh start, of truth and, and beauty and, and, and renewal. That's the kind of picture of light that we get. I think also as Isaiah's book develops, this idea of light starts to become focused on a person, one who will bring light to the nations, one who will stand for light, this kind of triumphant royal figure who will be one of light and life. And it's not just light and life, it's blessing and joy. Do you see it there in verse 3? You've enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. The picture is one of plenty, of a nation who's defeated their enemies and so expands their borders. There is no threat, there is nothing coming against them that they cannot take over. In verse 5, it's not just the defeat of the enemies, but of just ultimate peace. You sit there in verse 4 and 5, it says, You have shattered the oppressive yoke and the rod on their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Do you see there the oppressive yoke, the rod on their shoulders? It'll be done away with. The staff of the oppressor, it'll be done away with. There will be no more war for these people. The day of Midian, if you don't know that story, this is a story from Judges 7 with Gideon. And, and, he, and he, goes, he, takes God, he 
sent him to send a force against the Midianite army. They were kind of like the big dogs on the scene in ancient Near Eastern world at the time. And Gideon takes his army, and God's like, no, you've got too many men. And so what does he do? He goes to the lake and says, well, you know, which ones are going to drink like a dog and which ones are going to cut the water? And basically, God continues to cut down the amount of troops that Gideon can take until he takes this army. And, and if you remember the story, they have a torch in one hand, a lantern, and, and they go and yell at night, and, and it kind of causes confusion, and the Midianite army turn on each other and, and destroy each other, just basically wipe each other out. It's this story of surprising victory. Because God wants to remind them at that time, the reason he gets rid of so many of Gideon's troops for the battle is to say, this is not your victory. This is my victory, my surprising salvation that I will bring around for, for my joy, for my benefit. Nothing that you do is actually part of bringing about the victory. All you've got to do is trust me. It's the day of Midian. It's this surprising, amazing victory. And Isaiah is saying, despite the coming judgment of Assyria and the invasion, there will yet be victory. There will be peace in your future. And, and it, will be a, it will come about in a surprising way, in a way that's not expected and, and, and in a way that you, you don't kind of understand at first. It reminds us of what Isaiah says in chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, I think it's going to come on the screen. He says, they will beat their swords into plows and their spears into pruning knives. Nation will not take up the sword against nation, and they will never again train for war. It's the same kind of idea, isn't it? Here, there it's uh, turning their weapons into farm equipment. Here it's burning their out outfits, their uniforms, their boots and their cloaks, because there's no more war, there's no more need for those things. I think this would have been a great hope, a great hope for the people of Israel facing invasion from a superpower, a word to come back to after that invasion had occurred to remind the people that God was in control then and he is still in control now. A, a great reminder that darkness, pain and war will not be their final word, but that God is doing a great work and he has restoration and salvation on his mind for his people. At the heart of the prophecy, though, is verse 6. At the, at the heart of the day of light, at the heart of the rejoicing and the hope and the peace, is a birth, the birth of a son. It says, For a child will be born, verse 6, for us. A son will be given to us, and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. See, the great transformation of Israel's destiny was not going to come about by all these other means, but by the birth of a son, a royal figure who would kind of be destined for power. And Isaiah is ruthless in the way that he attacks Israel's kings. They had this responsibility and they failed time and time again to lead the people in God's wisdom, in God's power, to trust God as father, to, to bring about the peace and blessing that comes from being part of God's kingdom. They failed the kings time and time again. And yet this one, this king, would not fail. This king would do what all the other kings have failed to do, to bring about God's rescue and renewal, so that rather than darkness and brokenness, there will be rejoicing and peace. It's amazing, isn't it? It's hard to think of any human king living up to this kind of standard, particularly when you read verse 7. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. 
we start to see that the scope of what's being promised here is a dominion far greater than what national Judah could have ever hoped for. A prosperity that would never end. Wow. And a reign that doesn't just go on for a long reign, you know, 80, I don't know what's a long reign, 80 years. This reign goes on forever. This king seated on the throne from the line of David will rule for eternity. Wow. No, there's, there's no kings that come close to that. We're reminded of God's promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever and your throne will be established forever. A day of light, a day of peace. A day where God's king is seated on the throne, ruling and reigning, with an expanding dominion over all things, brings about peace in the world. Who is this future king which Isaiah prophesies about? We'll say it together. It's talking about Jesus, right? This prophecy is speaking to the experience that we understand Jesus to fulfill. Yes, but... Let's not go there too quickly. What I want to do with the rest of our time tonight is show us how to understand Old Testament prophecy in the depth of understanding it as, here's a prophecy, what it meant for the original audience, God's word to them through Jesus for us. You can draw a little box, God's word to them through Jesus for us. Okay, I want to show us, if we just skip to saying this is about Jesus and doesn't matter about the historical context or the Old Testament promise that is fulfilled in Christ and now we apply it to ourselves today, we run into all kinds of troubles. So I want to do some work on prophecy with you and on the big story of the Bible. So here's the second point. A son who reigns forever. See, I think this is about Jesus and this is true of Jesus and I'll show you that in a second. But before we get there, I want to show you first how names work in the book of Isaiah. Okay? I think the names function here primarily to tell us something about God as Father rather than to speak about uh, messianic prophecies that are true of the Son. Okay? I think they are true of the Son, but I think they primarily function to give us descriptions of God himself. Let me show you what I mean. Uh, leave a finger here in chapter 9. Flick back a couple of pages in your Bible or scroll. Get a physical Bible, though, if you don't have one. They're great. Uh, Isaiah chapter 7. Flip back a couple of pages. Chapter, uh, verse 3. The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out with your son Shear Jashub to meet Ahab at the end of the conduit of the upper pool by the road to the launderer's field. Now, the context is not too important here, but what I want to highlight is the name of Isaiah's first son, Shear Jashub. Your Bible's got a little uh, footnote in it, and it'll tell you what the English of his name actually means. What does it mean? A remnant will return. Now, Isaiah's named his son that, and he doesn't think that his son is the remnant. He doesn't even think about it, that in some way his son will bring about the remnant that will return. I don't think Assyria's not even invaded at this point. What, what, what's the function of the name of Isaiah's son? It's a pointer to the God who will bring about judgment for his people, but yet will save some. This key theme in the book of Isaiah is of the remnant, of the stump, of the new growth that comes about after judgment. And so this name points to something about who God is, his justice and his salvation. In chapter 8, flick across one more page, chapter 8, uh, we meet Isaiah's other son, Mahershalal Hashbaz. You wouldn't want him on your sporting team because it would take forever to say his name. Uh, and he's got a footnote as well. You can uh, uh, see it there in verse 3, halfway through. Name him Mahashalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to call father or mother, 
the wealth of Damascus and the spoils of Samaria will be carried off to the king of Assyria. See, Maha Shalal Hashbaz means speeding to the plunder, quick to the spoil. And Isaiah doesn't think that his son Maha Shalal Hashbaz, or Baz for short, he doesn't think that he is the Assyrian army invading and quick to plunder and spoil the people. Now, what he's saying is that Assyria's plunder and spoil of Israel is a direct result of the judgment of God. That it will happen or not happen at the, and, and, and highlights this truth about the God who is in control of the Assyrian army. In, in 818, on the next page, Isaiah tells you this. He says, Here I am with the children the Lord has given me to be signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of armies who dwells on Mount Zion. Do you see there? His children, I think, and their names function as signs and wonders in Israel to point to the Lord of armies, who he is, what he's doing in the world. And, and, and so I, I think this is the way that kind of names work in the book of Isaiah. And so when we come to chapter 9, verse 6, people have wondered for a long time, and some scholars would say, well, what does it mean that Jesus, if Jesus is this one? How is Jesus the eternal father? How does this work? And rather than being some kind of complex Trinitarian statement about Jesus, I think Jesus acts towards us in a fatherly way. His care and compassion could be described as fatherly. But rather than saying that this is just simply about Jesus, what we're seeing is that with the birth of this son... God will be known. He'll be shown to be who he truly is. A wonderful counselor, a mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. That this son will show God to be that kind of a God in the midst of the darkness and the brokenness that Israel are currently experiencing. And so let's just have a look at those kind of three phases. I've, I've called them horizons. You can see on the screen here, I drew this up earlier in the week, and uh, if there's any graphic designers that want to work with me on sermon slides in the future, you're welcome. Uh, but here we go. First horizon, we're thinking about the partial fulfillment for God's word to them. This is the kind of uh, geographical, political, uh, ethnic nation of Israel. Okay? And then next, we're going to see the second horizon. This is God's word to them through Jesus, how this is fulfilled in Jesus. And then the fourth one we've got to see is, uh, or the third one here is uh, complete fulfillment. So God's word to them through Jesus for us and how that's fulfilled in the new creation work that God is doing in the world. Okay? We've got 13 minutes. Here's the first one. Partial fulfillment in the particular historical and geographical context of Israel. See, as the book of Isaiah unfolds, we see this story of surprising salvation play out. And this son who's born, and Israel, as they would have understood it, see, King Ahaz has a son, King Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah does trust the Lord. He does start to turn things around for Israel. He does start to get rid of the altars and the idolatry, and he turns the people back towards God, and he brings about the public reading of God's word, the law, and starts to get things going in for Israel. And he rules with righteousness and justice. And actually, God works powerfully to bring about a saving work in a surprising way for the people through King Hezekiah. See, this story is picked up in Isaiah 37, or it's in Chronicles as well. But there is an Assyrian army which is massive, which is camped outside Jerusalem. And overnight, it says that the, Lord, the angel of the Lord struck down 185,000 Assyrians. And King Sennacherib, the Assyrian emperor, returns to Nineveh. 
It's this amazing, surprising, wonderful, saving work of God brought about not by the might and strength of the people, but by the God in whom they trust. And so people at that point would have praised God as what? As the wonderful counselor, as the almighty God who brings about victory, as the eternal father who cares, as the one who brings about peace for his people. But it's not fully fulfilled, is it? We're still left wanting more, hoping for more. See, Hezekiah wasn't perfect. The, the narrative of Isaiah goes on to show that it, Hezekiah then uh, fails to trust God and actually invites some envoys from Babylon in to see his treasury and see all his treasures. And surprise, surprise, Babylon then want to invade Israel. Uh, it, it's, it's a real sadness there. And Hezekiah died and he was buried. He didn't rule forever. And Israel's story wasn't one of peace. They went into exile. And even to this day, Israel's story is not one of peace. And so what we see is some partial fulfillment and some moments of God at work. But this, this story, this prophecy, isn't actually about Israel. It's not about the nation. It's not about the geopolitical region of Israel. It, it's actually far bigger than that. But just like Israel back then, we need the reminder that God is in control. He's in control of history, he's in control of armies, he's in control of nations, and he's in control of your life. Whatever you're going through at the moment, God's in control. He knows and he cares about the details of your life. And he says that you can trust him. You can turn to him and trust him. He doesn't say that if you trust me, everything's going to be okay. That you won't suffer that you won't experience pain and brokenness in this world. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say that things will be fine. But he does say that even in the darkness and brokenness of this world, he is at work. He's bringing about his saving purposes. And for his people, darkness is not the final word. Light is. Even in mourning, even in pain, even in suffering, whatever you're going through at this point in your life, know that that is not your final story in Christ. That is not your final story. We can trust God's plans and purposes even when we have no idea how he's at work. We can trust him. He's in control and he's good and he's orchestrating all the events of history and all the events of your life so that you might trust him more, so that you might grow in your faith and dependence of who God is. You might be here tonight and you've never even explored God. You're here for the first time. God is trustworthy even in dark moments in your life. But ultimately, though, this prophecy is not about uh, ethnic Israel and the fulfillment that they found throughout the Old Testament story. The pattern of the Bible is promise and fulfillment. And the true Israel is Jesus. He is the one in whom all of the Old Testament promises and prophecies find their fulfillment. See, let me just show you this one in Matthew 4. Keep a finger here in Isaiah 9. Flick across with me to Matthew 4. Let's pick it up in verse 12. <clears throat> uh, when he heard that John had been arrested, this is talking about Jesus, he withdrew into Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, along the road by the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, because the kingdom of heaven has come near. 
Do you see there how the author of Matthew, who was an eyewitness to the life of Jesus, one of his first followers, records Isaiah's prophecy to show us that it's actually about Jesus. Jesus is the light that was prophesied in the darkness. Jesus is the one who is going to deal with the brokenness and, and the mourning and the gloom and to bring about light and life for these people. And his ministry, he goes to Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. There's so many stories around Galilee and Capernaum and Nazareth. It's amazing. And the kingdom that Jesus brings is not a political kingdom. It's not an earthly kingdom. It's not a geopolitical region or an ethnic group anymore. What is it in verse 17 that he preaches? It's the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. These promises find their fulfillment in Jesus and in a spiritual kingdom, in a kingdom that God is building that is eternal, that is not of this world. The light and peace that Isaiah promised won't come through any earthly government, any earthly people, any earthly kings, but through Jesus and the eternal reign of King Jesus. See, God sees us and knows us and has stepped into the darkness in the person and work of Jesus to deal with our brokenness, to deal with our sin, the way that we rebel against God and, and fail to live with him as the ruler and king of our lives. We just push him to the side. He's done something about the darkness that we face by dying for us. See, for some in the room this morning, we're experiencing darkness and pain tonight, I mean. And in the brokenness that we're experiencing, what do we do there? What do we do with this experience that we feel that life isn't as it always should be and it's bro- there's brokenness, there is pain, there is sickness, there is suffering and there is even death? What do we do in those moments? We turn to Jesus the one who has done something about the darkness. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. See, Jesus who brings life and light shapes our whole existence, shapes the way that we see the world, shapes the way that we experience suffering and brokenness and the reality of this world that is under a curse. See, look at how John puts it in the beginning of his gospel. Look with me, John, John chapter 1. He says, John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him, not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. See, in Jesus, He steps onto the pages of world history, and takes on flesh, and deals with our biggest problem, our sin. And just like Israel, we're in darkness in our lives, and we, we can't, we're powerless to do anything about it. And so Jesus deals with that by dying in our place. His life for us takes on our punishment that we deserve for rejecting God and gives us life and light. You see it there in the fact that the light comes into the world and the darkness will not overcome it. That moment when Jesus died was the moment when darkness thought it had won, when the darkness had won a victory. But it wasn't. Jesus rose from the dead. He was resurrected to new life, and in him the light has overcome the darkness. Both out there, but also in here in our hearts, if we trust him. See, in Jesus, Isaiah's words find their fulfillment. Jesus is the word of God. He is God come to be with us. We can now know and respond to God through his word, Jesus. We can read the Gospels and, and, and have God speak to us directly and counsel us and give us his wisdom. He is the wonderful counselor, isn't he? 
Jesus shows God to be mighty. He defeats sin and Satan and death, and and he makes a mockery of them at the cross and the resurrection. He shows himself to be above every ruler, every power, every authority, anything that would hold him down, he shows himself to be above. He shows God to be who God truly is, the mighty one. See, Jesus' death in our place shows God to be our father. He gives us access to God, breaks down the barriers of hostility that we have between God for our rebellion, for our sin, and brings us back into life and light with the Father. He brings us peace. Jesus' resurrection is our peace. It's our hope and peace. See, Jesus' life and death and resurrection show Isaiah's prophecy to be true, that the light has come into the world And we live in this first light, knowing that there is more to come. There is still darkness and brokenness in the world. But we now live with hope. So is that your hope tonight? How would you know if that was your hope, the solid hope that you have built your life on? Let me tell you how you'd know. Because nothing in your life would be as important as that. And if that is your hope, and that's what your life is built on, the life of trusting Jesus, his death in your place, that you can now come to God as your father. It would be your hope and you'd know it because nothing could take that away. No matter what happens in your life, no matter what darkness you experience, no matter the brokenness, the pain of this world, if your hope is in Jesus, then you are secure in him. You can know for sure that the God of the universe loves you and has saved you and you have life with him to look forward to. But it's not just uh, life in this world now. It's the life to come. Turn with me, last, last place we'll flick to, Revelation 22. See, this prophecy finds its complete fulfillment, not just in the historical uh, geopolitical Israel, not even just in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but in the future new creation that God is bringing about. See, the book of Isaiah, the, one of the key themes is renewal. God is doing a new work. He's turning deserts into gardens. He's bringing waters and streams of life into the desert. And here's the picture in Revelation 22 from John, one of the eyewitnesses and followers of Jesus. From verse 1, Then he showed me the river of water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on either side of the river, bearing twelve crimes of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need to give the light, will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. See, for those who trust Jesus, this is where all things are heading. The renewal of all things, the day when God will do away with the curse, do away with the evil and the brokenness, the sickness, the pain, the death. Do you see it there in in side of verse 3? There will no longer be any curse. See, the hope of Isaiah is not even just the hope of light in some abstract sense. It's the hope of Christ with us and of us with him for eternity. That's where all things are headed for those who have their faith in Jesus. It's the removal of the curse that has plagued the world since Adam and Eve. It's the removal of the brokenness that has plagued humanity. It's a return to the presence of God. Do you, do you see here how light works in John's gospel? 
John, who has read Isaiah, who has been hoping and trusting for these promises and has seen them come to fruition in Jesus, in his life and death, and looks forward with future glory. See how he uses light? Light is presence. Light is to have personal, intimate relationship with God. In, in, in eternity, in the new creation, there's no need for lamps or suns because we're with God himself. He is the light. The light is in new creation and everyone experiences it in their fullness. And life is there, symbolized by the tree and, and the river. And there is no more darkness, no more brokenness because the light of the world has come. And we're enjoying life with him forever. That's what Isaiah's prophecy is actually all about. That's where it finds its fulfillment. See, in Jesus, our story is not one of darkness, but of light and of eternity with the God who made us. And so how do we live now? What does it look like to live in light of that future light and hope? I think it means to live with hope and thankfulness even in the darkness. Even though in your life, in this world, there is darkness and brokenness and curse, you can sing songs of joy and thankfulness. You can lament and you can grieve as well because of that future hope that you have in Jesus. See, what are we to be as a community here at UniChurch? What are we to be a bunch of people who are on about that, who are on about the light of the world who has come and the future light and the reality that we are with God forever? That's the kind of community we want to be to remind each other to hold on to his promises, to trust him, to live for him, even when things are dark, even when we don't know why there's suffering and pain and brokenness. And Jesus actually calls us to live then as lights in the world, to be people whose lives have been transformed from darkness to light, who now live on mission for Jesus, to, to share the hope that we have, the life and light that Jesus has brought about transforming our hearts. See, we're to live like sunflowers. I love sunflowers. They're one of my favorite flowers. I actually don't know too many flowers, so I don't know if it's, I can't even say it's my favorite flower. But it's just something about sunflowers. They're big and they're yellow and they just kind of grab your attention. And on my street this year, um, there's been a, a, a house just a few doors down that has had some sunflowers out the front, and so I kind of drive past them regularly. And they just kind of grab your eye. You can't not enjoy a sunflower when you walk. It's like, Look at me, it's so yellow and big. Um, where am I going? Sunflowers, they have this property called heliotropism. Okay? And what that means is that the face of the sunflower, the head of the sunflower, turns to face the sun at all moments. So they start with their stems pointing it to the east, and throughout the day they kind of move across to the west, and then as the sun goes down they kind of reset, ready to go to soak in more of the sun's rays, to enjoy the goodness of the sun. They track it, they look for it, they long for it, and they celebrate it with joy. See, that's what we're to be like as Christians. Always facing to the light of Jesus, turning to the light, celebrating the light, rejoicing in the light, looking forward to, even in the darkness that we experience, the light that is to come, both in this world and into the future. We're to live as sunflowers, trusting the security of the light that comes in Jesus. See, Jesus says in John 8, 32, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. That's our hope, yeah? That's the final fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy of light. The light of the world has come, and if you trust him, you will never walk in darkness again. That's why we're singing songs to praise Jesus, why we have this series. It's what we're on about as a church, to introduce people to the God who has made himself known in the person and work of Jesus. My prayer is that this Christmas, we would see and know and rejoice 
in the light of Jesus. Let's pray that we do that. Father God, we are so thankful for your word. We are so thankful that you have shown us thousands of years ago that there is light coming into the gloom and darkness. We are so thankful for Jesus, the word become flesh, the light who has overcome the darkness. We pray that you might help us to trust him, even when things look dark and bleak in our lives. We pray that you might help us to shine as lights in a dark world, to point people to the hope of the gospel, to the joy that it is to know and love Jesus. We pray that you might help us to live as sunflowers, pointing towards the light, celebrating the light, and living with the hope that we will be with you for eternity. We are so thankful for what you have done and what you are doing among us. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.